0: all right hello everyone welcome to this episode of the hot seat podcast i'm your host scotty scott henderson aka scotty hendo on the interwebs today's show is entitled the innovation biome featuring kumar meta phd best-selling author of the book of the same title and if you're wondering he chose his title first um for our loyal listeners you'll notice we're taking a bit of a departure of our format instead of the usual three guests i'll spend this episode diving deep with just one since kumar has spent a lifetime studying and practicing innovation science. And of course, we'll have time for those of you in our live audience to ask your own questions in the final segment. It's the benefit of being here in person to ask that question. We're recording this in the garage at Tech Square in the heart of Atlanta's tech scene. Thanks to the generosity of our partner, Tom Daly of Relevant Ventures, who's made today's lunch possible. So if you're eating that, say thank you to him when you see him later. He's also underwritten Kumar's trip and uh, time in here in Atlanta, spreading the big idea that, that when companies innovate, all of our lives get better. Uh, And today is just one stop on this whirlwind Johnny innovation seed journey that he's on. So let let me take a moment here to set the frame uh, before we get into the questions. Um, You guys remember when everyone was talking about synergy in the early 90s? I I can't help but think about that every time I hear the word innovation spoken. Um, A little bit of a jaundiced skeptical thing comes in my head, but it seems like every company is claiming to have that as the differentiator. We, We do innovation very well. Yet few people could even clearly articulate what it means not like the famous Supreme Court discussion about pornography. We'll just have to know innovation when we see it, it seems. So we're sitting here in Tech Square, which has the highest density of startups, corporate innovation centers, students, and academic researchers in the entire Southeast US. Um, people, companies, and public utilities come here to create breakthroughs and pursue the innovations they need. As you would expect, you, you can find a wide variety of approaches and needs, uh, as well as first hand perspective on what works and what doesn't. Just look around you right now in the audience and you'll see representatives from uh, the Home Depot, AT&T Foundry, ATDC, Georgia Tech Venture Lab, Keysight, Tyson Krupp, Gateway, Southern Company, Delta Airlines, Georgia Department of Economic Development, Metro Atlanta Chamber, Coulter Fund, Georgia Tech student groups and startups like Sales Team. So we're, we're in a good spot to discuss this thing called innovation, it seems. So, and we're not alone. I, I just returned on the 6 a.m. flight this morning from Baton Rouge where my company Sandbox Communities has been helping LSU connect its innovation biome with a greater Baton Rouge community. And the previous week I was at Purdue uh, University helping them do the same thing in Indiana. Um, Suburban research parks really kind of started at Stanford and Research Triangle Park and it kind of emulated for the past 30 to 40 years at universities across the globe. More recently, innovation districts uh, as the Brookings Institute has termed them have emerged in urban settings. It so happens that Tech Square is one of them and stands in great company in the same category as Kendall Square. Boston Innovation District, Brooklyn Navy Yards, Union Square in Denver, 1871 Chicago, and the list goes on. With all these neighborhoods emerging with the intention of spurring innovation and companies setting up uh, to show the, their shows to innovate here, there's a lot of experimentation with innovation strategies and tactics, all within a rapidly changing technology landscape. You know, globalization, the internet, mobile communication paving the way for a whole new epic uh, epoch here. So we were starting and we're starting them here young in Georgia around innovation. The Day One Challenge, which we have launched with the support of the Georgia Department of Economic Development and NEVO, will conclude on May, May 5th right here in this very spot with 12 high school teams representing uh, their schools and uh, presenting their innovative solutions for how artificial intelligence will improve education, health, and sustainability. So if you want, go view and vote their uh, vote on their, their solutions at dayonegeorgia.com. You have until May 4th to finish that. So with so many people, companies and universities seeking the holy grail of innovation, is this a case of the blind leading the blind through a circuitous labyrinth? So like, I guess maybe it's like toddlers playing with power tools. There's definitely a fair amount of pain and frustration, especially with interior barriers and unclear measurements of success, success that everyone's facing. So yesterday we sent everyone here in the audience uh, a one question survey and it asks, what is your biggest pain point when it comes to innovation within your organization? and uh, You can see the list is long, I'm gonna read a couple highlights. Uh, Here's what some folks shared. Uh, Management is used to doing things the way they have done in the past. Uh, Complacency, people's egos and fear get in the way, parentheses, myself included. Um, Typically innovation takes time that doesn't immediately move the product forward and most companies don't wanna take that time, is another statement. Um, Being so tied down to just services when I know that product development is where we can make more profits, is another statement. Uh, another pain point is measuring success, when, knowing when to stick with an idea and when to move on, trying to avoid repetition and mimicking my customers, um, culture, bureaucracy, lack of long-term vision, and uh, sales and marketing prior, prioritizing, uh, uh, prioritization of non-innovative futuristic deliverables. And probably the last one uh, that, of, of note is uh, determining the business impact of any of our projects. So a lot of nodding going on in this room, obviously you guys are willing to state that, um, even the frustration that uh, the fastest you can adopt technology, it changes. So with that, let's get started. Before we bring our featured guest to the stage, I'd like to invite Tom Daly uh, for an honorary stop in the hot seat, holding a philosophy degree from USC. That's South Carolina for South those Carolina. not blinded by the SEC bias that he has. Uh, Tom's career arc includes stops at Dell, ING, UPS, marketing agencies, and 11 years of wrestling the innovation alligator within the Coca-Cola company leaving as a Hall of Fame mobile marketing exec and Dan Fouts lookalike, <laughs> as his LinkedIn headline says, I turn big ships in small spaces and toward the digital future. Since leaving the, that corporate cushy life, he's uh, dived into uh, the startup world through relevant ventures and catching lightning in the bottle with Skyn. So,
1: Tom, thank you again for making all this possible, for thank introducing us to the idea Thank of, you to your colleagues. Thank you to Sandbox Atlanta. Super exciting to have this happen.
0: Absolutely, so why, oh, how, did, how did you come across Kumar's work and um, what compelled you to fund this trip? This
1: is actually the second time that I've met Kumar. Uh, the first time I met him, well, I was invited to an event in New York City um, facilitated by a fellow named uh, Dr. Jeff Cole who leads the, um, the other USC, uh, Center for the Digital Future. Um, and if you haven't read Jeff's work, um, it's, it's amazing. It's remarkable and when Jeff calls you, you, you go. Um, and he said, come to New York, uh, I want you to be a part of a small audience. I have a fellow, Kumar Mehta, has written a book, The Innovation Biome, and I said, wow, I think that's great. You know, that my, my little idea about turning big ships in small spaces is about how do you drive innovations in large, you know, old organizations, you know, successful but you know, need to kind of move in a different direction. So I had a chance to hear uh, Kumar speak, and and was enthralled. And I, I knew a hundred people in Atlanta uh, who I thought would benefit from hearing what Kumar has learned, um, uh, what he has studied, and how companies can drive innovation sort of into the fabric of their corporate cultures. And I'm I'm very very excited to be able to uh, help with, work with you guys to create this environment. So what do you
0: what do you want to come from this? What's the what's your takeaway or your impact that you'd like today to be for I tell
1: you, the, the, the subtitle of Kumar's book you know when when companies innovate we all win just rings true that, that is a statement of fact this is as much of a pay it forward initiative as anything we all need to live in worlds that are going to benefit from the ideas coming from people here in this audience and and listening to this and if uh, what Kumar shares helps someone get to that destination a day faster a week faster or a month faster, that's, that's, a, that's a good day.
0: That's awesome. Well, right. Next time you sit in the hot seat, uh, you're not gonna get the softballs that you're getting lobbed to, by the way. Right. Yeah, just letting you know that uh, the golden rule does apply here. So thank you very much for providing for today. For Let's give a little love to Tom appreciate for making today's thing possible. All right, we'll get the Kumar in here. Uh, so it's now time for the main event. And I was pronouncing your last name wrong, huh? No, no? no whatever, Meta, Meta. I like Meta because yeah. it's so yeah. meta. Yeah. Meta, I don't know what we're going with it. Meta is fine. Meta, okay, all right, so. It's uh, Dr. Kumar Mehta to the stage. He's an expert in innovation science and author of the Amazon bestseller, The Innovation Biome, a sustained business environment where innovation thrives. Um, founder of the Bridges Insight think tank focused on innovation. Most interesting to this Nebraska kid, he got his PhD at Iowa, uh, which we always like to make fun of Iowa, being from Nebraska, but I'm from Nebraska, so what are you going to do? Judge me about that? No. Um, <laughs> Kumar has had a broad variety of careers, education, and now he's uh, he started in pharmaceuticals. You were 14 years in the technology industry, working at Microsoft in, in, in the heydays of going into the internet, right? Um, CEO of your own large data, data analytics company. Now your fourth career, which is writing, which makes sense because I was known for the writer's workshop, yeah. so I could see that happening. Um, he believes that innovation is the one constant that has enhanced human life since the beginning of time and is committed to make, make sure that knowledge helps enhance the rate of innovation, so. Wow, that's a a lot for me to get through. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for enduring four pages of notes. Uh, Get to the first question, Scott. Just stop talking and ask, what is innovation? Uh, And and can and should everyone innovate?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me here, and and thanks for all of you showing up and having lunch. So hopefully we can make this a valuable use of your time. But uh, uh, to start with, to get to your uh, question, so innovation is the one constant, the one thing that leads us to a future we cannot grasp or comprehend. It takes us to something we don't know. And that's, one, that's the kind of positive aspirational side of it. The other side is that you need to innovate in order to stay relevant because without innovation, you're gonna be kind of irrelevant. You know, Somebody else who takes care of your customers better is gonna come in and take that away from you. And nobody wants to be the Nokia or Kodak or Blackberry or any of these companies we all know about uh, so innovation, as all of you know, has you know, countless definitions, thousands of definitions. My favorite definition actually is one uh, from the government, from the U.S. Uh, Patents and Trademark Office, that innovation is a series of steps, it's a process that begins with human imagination and creativity and results in something of value for society to enjoy. So that is innovation, and, and as uh, Scott mentioned earlier, you know, innov- you, innovation is something, you know, when you see something innovative, you know what it is. So it doesn't really require definition, but if you want a definition, that's the one that I kind of live by. That it has to start with creativity and ends with something of value. If you just do something that society doesn't value, then it's not an innovation. And, you know, to your question. Sorry, you know, no, go ahead. Yeah, to the question if you know, whether everyone can innovate, absolutely yes. So let me start off with a little story about how Amazon does innovation. So in in my opinion today, Amazon is probably the most uh, innovative company, and at least certainly the most impactful to all of our lives today. And Amazon has half a million employees. They were the fastest company to go from zero to 100 billion in revenues, and that was in 2015. And this year, they're ready to cross 200 billion in revenues. And a lot of this happens from the innovation from the half a million employees. Now at Amazon, everybody's encouraged to innovate, and no matter where you are in the organization. And all these great products we use have just come from ideas that people have. So for example, uh, the Echo, the voice-assisted digital assistant, was uh, an idea in 2011 by someone in the company, and in 2014 it was a product that we could buy. And they do this by kind of democratizing innovation. If you have an idea, no matter where you are in the organization, (coughs) Your idea will be listened to if you follow a certain format. And you basically need to do 3 things if you want to come up get your idea heard at Amazon. One is you need to write a press release. So even though while you have an idea in your mind, you kind of have to have a press release so it kind of you know exactly what the end result is going to be. You need to have a 5 or 6 page FAQ document so any question anyone has is addressed, you know, while the idea is still in your mind. And the third thing is you need to show how the customer experience is altered, or bring in prototypes or whatever is necessary. If you do these three things, no matter how crazy your idea is or whatever it may be, if you do these three things, it'll be heard to by some, it'll be listened to. Somebody will hear it. It may be your management, or it may be somebody else's, some other team, but it'll be listened to. And the reason Amazon does this is because they have they've established certain principles for innovation. Uh, the first is working backwards, so which is why they have you write the press release first and then kind of work backwards from it. Uh, the second thing is they want to kind of facilitate innovation and make it easier, uh, and they want clarity. That's why you write these Word documents, no PowerPoint, because PowerPoint leaves too much uh, to the interpretation. So Jeff Bezos wants to encourage what he calls the institutional yes. In most companies, uh, any idea has to go through seven or eight layers of management. And any no along the way can kill an idea. And you don't want to do that because that just creates a risk averse and conservative culture. But, but when you can, but when you encourage people to say yes, that kind of changes everything. And in fact, they've done this very interesting thing where you have something called disagree and commit. And disagree and commit means that even though you may not agree with the idea or you may not see the promise, you don't kill it. You can say, hey, I disagree with it, but I'll let it go forward. And uh, the Kindle was a disagree and commit decision, one of the most successful products from Amazon. And at the time, the thinking was, "You know, we're a software company. What do we know about hardware? Let's leave that to the experts. There are all these other things we don't want to get into. And they said, hey. But you know, eventually, they said, OK, this may not be the right thing for us, but let's move forward. And of course, we know how, how successful the Kindle is. And
0: that, yeah. It was an interesting, because I, I was enamored with the, the PR FAQ, as they call it, inside Amazon. I was talking with my friend Mark Ehlert, who works at a- a- Amazon and in their innovation stuff. He's originally from Stone Mountain. And in talking with him, that's what generated the concept for the day one challenge, right? right. So these high school students have had to write a press release and their FAQs, and that's the presentation that they've, they've given. So if you go and see it, you can see the effect. I wrote a PR FAQ just for that challenge so it would answer everything out. And it is a discipline that's amazing. One thing that Mark uh, shared with me was uh, he did an innovation challenge inside Amazon, and, uh, and the top three got to go present to Jeff and his board, his, uh, his inner circle, and it operated just like all of their, their staff meetings operates. It starts with what they call study hall. It's 15 minutes of reading the documents considering, marking it up, and then responding back. It's fascinating how you, it's a whole different experience to get ideas to surface like that.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. So at, at Amazon, uh, basically, because there's thousands of ideas, they, they believe that quantity leads to quality. If you have more things, you're gonna have more hits. And uh, it's just, the, the, the problem for most companies is that, you know. so we talked about Amazon's approach, and they have an approach it works for them. It may not work for you, it may not work for another company. But they have an approach, and most companies don't have an approach. And until you have an approach, uh, or unless you have an approach, innovation is going to be a shot in the dark. It may happen, but only if you're lucky.
0: Hmm. You know, you're talking about uh, the quantity. Uh, one of the things that he also shared with me is that they found out was by reading comments on products mm-hmm. to discover unintended uses of the products. And so they found that there's this drill uh, buffer for metal, that people kept writing in the comments, great for my dog's claws and nails. And so they, they gave that data back to the, to the company and who then created packaging for pet, pet owners to use their drill uh, extender for buffing their uh, claws off. It was pretty interesting stuff. So, so you, oh, go ahead.
2: Yeah, no, usually I read the comments section on the internet for entertainment. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So maybe that's what Amazon's become so big is they analyze it and figure yeah. out what the products are. And they so yeah. I, I was, in reading your book, I, my, one of my favorite things was, was the succession of your idea of the fallacy of the next big thing. You want to break down the fallacy of the next break, big thing for everyone?
2: Yeah. So, so I, I did a lot of research on innovation. And, and of course, you know, everyone is looking for the next big thing. And while all my research showed you know, kind of what you need to have in place to, to innovate, it also uncovered some problems and some misconceptions that we all live with. And all of us are fascinated by the next big thing. And so I write about what I call the fallacy of the next big thing. And, and basically, uh, w- one of the things that, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong, well, put it this way, there's three things wrong with the next big thing. The first is next, the second is big, and the third is thing. <laughs> Apart from that, everything else is okay. (laughs) Period, the period at the end is okay. Yeah, and so let me, I'll, I'll talk about each of them, if you'll indulge me here. So let's talk about next. So first of all, there's very rarely a next. You know, most innovations are there in plain sight. In fact, there was a large technology company I worked with in Silicon Valley that basically said, hey, you know, let's go 10 years back and let's pull out a strategic plan from 10 years ago and see how many of the predictions we made 10 years ago came true over the uh, course of the decade. Now this is the technology industry where the rate of change is super rapid. What they learned was that everything they predicted 10 years ago, with with a few exceptions, actually ended up happening. So there was nothing that happened that took them by surprise. There was no next. And this has been going on since the beginning of time. Uh, If you look at paper currency, which was uh, used in ancient China for trade, Now, the concept of paper currency was known by the Western world for centuries before the Western world adopted it, but the idea of using paper as something of value compared to gold or something else at a tangible value was such a far-fetched concept that no one wanted to use it. And the reason I bring up this example is uh, because it brings into light the same conversations we're having today. You know, we talk about crypto and all these other kinds of currencies, and we don't get uh, what the value is now I don't know whether these will be successful or not, but you know it just kind of puts into in, into mind that you know there are things that are out there that can change things around and they they're not necessarily new uh, you know so that that's that's more or less about about next you know uh, in in the software industry where I came from or in the technology industry where I came from, the trends have always been clear there were big computers and there were personal computers, and then there was client server and internet and cloud and, uh, you know, today the trends in machine learning and artificial intelligence, none of these things are new. You know, most of the innovations in technology, uh, so for example, Microsoft didn't create the first computer operating system, Google didn't create the first search engine, Apple didn't create the first uh, smartphone or the first music player, Facebook didn't create the first social platform. These things weren't next. They were there. They were there for everyone to use. The innovators were the ones who rode these trends to come up with these amazing products that all of us loved and make, you know, insane amounts of profits. So that's next. Um, Let's move on to big, the second problem with the next big thing. With big, nothing nothing is big right from the start, and we're enamored because we feel like we need to make these billion-dollar bits, especially if you're a big company. We want to have these move-the-needle bits. But nothing becomes a billion dollar business before it becomes a 10 million dollar business or 50 million dollar business or a smaller business first. So take Google, for example. You know, Google is big, very big, the, kind of the heavyweight company. Now, Google started off as an academic experiment by, by two PhD students. And all they wanted to do was figure out a way to create an index for the web. <clears throat> and what they're thinking was that, hey, you know, uh, I can see how popular a page is or what the rank of that page is by seeing how many other pages are connected to that, and seeing how many other pages are connected to each of that. And this wasn't even a commercial uh, initiative. And search results weren't what they were after. Search results were a byproduct that just happened. And when they realized that the search results were better than other search engines of the time, the founders of the company tried to sell Google to Excite for less than a million dollars. And Excite said, no, thank you. you know, of course, Google became big, but the big happened not by executing on a plan to build a world-changing company. The big happened by providing a big change in experience, and and that change in experience, what I call the experience delta, is what drives what, you know, uh, what what drives innovation. And so that's the one thing to think about: is that no matter how small your innovation may seem. If it provides a big change in experience or a big experience delta, chances are it's going to become a big innovation. Uh, Let's talk about thing, if we still have a minute or two on this topic. Uh, There's two problems with thing. The first problem is that the thing, you know, most people think about innovation as a product innovation, but it could be something else. And the second problem with thing is that it's often not the thing that we think of as the innovation, it's actually something something else that drives the innovation. So let's talk about the first problem with thing. Uh, The first problem with thing is that the thing is often not a thing. So take, for example, frequent flyer miles. American Airlines popularized this concept. Now, frequent flyer miles uh, was just a a highly coveted and tangible reward because they included first-class upgrades and free travel, but it was something It was simply a loyalty program. The airlines were still selling the same seats. The thing they were selling was the same. All they did was they took something of value and gave it to their best customers. So it was a perfect win-win for the customers and the company. Or Amazon Prime, you know. Amazon Prime was a program where you paid $79 when it was introduced and you got free two-day shipping on pretty much anything you purchased. Prior to the introduction of Prime, express shipping was something you saved for special occasions. Uh, and the time it took for normal shipping just kind of dissuaded shoppers from buying online. So here comes Prime that not only tells you when you, that Express ships your product, it guarantees a day of shipment is gonna come, and that's altered the face of internet commerce. I just read last week that Amazon Prime crossed the 100 million member mark, and uh, that's uh, like the 12th or 13th largest country in the world, if it were a country. Mm. Or, or closer to my background from Microsoft, You know, Microsoft Office wasn't the thing. It was simply taking three uh, productivity applications and putting them in one box. Now, the company benefited because it became the virtually sole provider of these things, and the customers benefited because they got their full suite of applications for a low price. And so, the point I'm trying to make is that very often, a slight change in business model, or just being creative in how you sell something, can become the innovation. Hmm. And uh, just to close off on this topic, The second problem with thing is that the the thing you think of as the innovation is not really the innovation. It's actually something else, something I call the thing behind the thing. And you know, I studied innovations from the beginning of time, and if you take the first innovation a lot of people think about, the invention of the wheel, Uh, you know, people think about the wheel as being this fantastic innovation that kind of started the first information highway and the commerce highway. But the real innovation was not in the wheel, if you study this, uh, the, this discovery. The real innovation was finding a stable platform to connect the wheel to. It was the axle. Mm. And it was the combination of the wheel and the axle that's had a transformative effect on society. So the axle was the wheel behind the th- thing, was the thing behind the thing. Or if you take personal computers, you know, when everyone was racing to make personal computers, what actually made them work and made you you know, made companies do magic with computers was the software. So software was the thing behind the thing that made computers possible. So the reason I talk about the fallacy of the next big thing is because they'll always be the next big thing. You know, they'll be the next new drug for an incurable disease, or the next iPhone, or the next whatever great thing is. But how we talk about things impact how we think about them. So we're always talking about the next big thing, we're always going to be looking outwards you know, for something big, for, for something tangible, when the real innovation is actually something small. It may be in a form you can't recognize, and it may be sitting right in front of you. Mm. And that's what we need to sh- make sure we don't uh, miss out on.
0: Yeah, it makes me think about your examples of uh, anesthesia and content, content, uh, contact lenses. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the refrigeration, we, we, some of these things that, you, that were not things that you would think of, that it was more of timing. You had to wait for something else to get better. Yeah,
2: yeah. So one of the things, so so timing is actually a, a very uh, strong predictor of innovation. In fact, one of the large VC companies in, in Silicon Valley did a study of you know what made uh, their investments successful. And there's a TED talk on this. Uh, the number one thing, uh, and they looked at all the attributes of a startup. You know, idea and timing and funding and management team experience and all these attributes that go into making a company successful. What they found was that timing was the most important thing. Timing correlated. If you're before your time, you're too early, and if you're too late, then it's too late. And so, for exa- and this has been going on from the beginning of time. So it's, it's, the advice to all of you is that keep looking at your cutting room floor. Keep looking at things that were discarded a while ago because those things may be valuable today. And one case in point that you just mentioned was contact lenses. You know, contact lenses have been a f- fantastic innovation for, you know, corrective vision. The concept of uh, lenses covering the eyes was known for a long time, but you couldn't really use contact lenses because it was just not practically possible and too painful to take, you know, to take images or to take measurements of, of your sensitive corneal tissue. And so that innovation or that idea just lay dormant. 60 years later, completely unrelated was a new development called anesthesia for, for some other purpose. When this uh, development happened, Contact lenses took on a new life. And now, you know, you can take those uh, molds of your corneal tissue. And so contact lenses became uh, mainstream after that.
0: Hmm. So, um, in, in your book, um, which I highly recommend if you haven't been convinced yet to, to buy it, buy it on Amazon. Uh, it's great. It'll be uh, two, two days shipping, to be in your, in your doorsteps pretty quickly. Um, you can get it on Kindle as well. You, you talk, there's a whole chapter on the experience delta. Yeah. Um, what, is, what is that, and why, why is that important to what you're laying out here?
2: Yes, I talk about the experience Delta as the currency for innovation. So, innovation today is being increasingly democratized. The costs and barriers to innovation are lower than they've ever been. Anything you need for innovation, whether it's people or knowledge or know-how or technology or manufacturing or components or whatever you need for innovation is available somewhere in the world at a reasonable cost. And that kind of accelerates uh, the rate of innovation and makes it available to everyone. You don't have to be a big company to innovate. Uh, the value is no longer in the components that you have access to or the components that are sourced. The value is in the experiences you create. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I use iPhone as an example. Uh, You know, everyone thinks of iPhone as a great innovation, which it is. Now, nothing about the iPhone was new. All the stuff that made the iPhone special, uh, you know, GPS technology, the Internet or the browser technology, the the dual touch, the multi-touch screen, the technology behind Siri, the compression technology. All of this stuff was available for everyone to use. In fact, it was available, it wasn't even behind the tall secretive walls of corporate R&D labs. All of this was funded by government research. Anyone could use it. Now, what Apple did was take all these broadly available components, put them together into an experience that all of us can't live without. So, uh, experiential innovation is not about inventing or creating new things. It's not about inventing the airplane. It's about using the airplane for commercial aviation. It's not about inventing the internet. It's about using the internet uh, to alter how you consume or uh, music or books or whatever. It's not about building a better phone or a better camera. It's about the new experiences that you create when the two are in a single device. And I, I encourage companies to start thinking about experiential innovation. Not necessarily coming up with new things, but using things that are out there to create new experiences. And the difference between how something is done today versus how it could be done uh, with an innovation is the experience delta. And that is what I kind of talk about as the currency for innovation. That if you need a way to determine, you know, where to invest and where not to invest, kind of look at your experience delta and the, and the things with the bigger experience delta are far more likely to be successful innovations.
0: Hmm. So- as people here and those listening along online, um, how, how, how can they unleash the creativity? I, mean, I was looking through yeah. the questions that uh, our audience and there's probably four or five that's like, how do you deal with uh, traditional management system? How do you create an innovation culture? Right. How do you invade a company that's stuck in its ways? Um, how do you innovate a substantially large organization? These are common pain points, it sounds right. like. How, how can they unleash the creativity?
2: Yeah, so, so creativity is, uh uh, is as i mentioned it 's the starting point of innovation you know without creativity you 've got nothing new you 've got the same thing going on and on so innovation starts with creativity, and all these experiential transformational products we talked about uh, they 've been developed by incredibly creative people uh, now the question is can can we unleash that same level of transformation can we can people in this room can people that we work with every day come up with the next iPhone or any level of transformational innovation and i You know, because all these great things that we talk about as innovations, they've been done by these insanely brilliant minds. You know, whether it's Gates or Jobs or Einstein or Edison or all these people we talk about, you know, they've had genius-level IQs. At least they're reported to have genius-level IQs. So the first question you ask yourself is, you know, is creativity related to intelligence? And can I do that with the uh, the people I have? Because if you have to hire a bunch of Einsteins, then you might as well give up now because you're not going to find those... Rare and gifted minds. So, if you look at the science of creativity, creativity is actually made up of two components creative potential and creative achievement. Now, creative potential is the ability to come up with a new idea or come up with something new, and creative achievement is the ability to follow through on that creative urge. And both are necessary for innovation. You know, without the creative potential, you have nothing to implement, and without the you know, without the ability to follow through, you simply have daydreams. Now, research on creativity has shown that creative potential is related to intelligence and IQ, uh, and that's because you know creativity is a complex process that uses the same brain functions and same brain processes as intelligence. But this correlation has a threshold of about 120, of an IQ of 120. Beyond that, uh, there's no uh, correlation between creative potential and IQ and intelligence. And creative achievement, on the other hand, has not shown to have a correlation with IQ. So this means that, you know, while an IQ of 120 is not low, it's it's everywhere. You know, the average college graduate has an IQ of 115. So while you may not have these genius level IQs, you can actually curate creativity if you take the right potential and the right achievement and put them together. Now, what ends up happening in most companies is that you know somebody's successful in an initiative? You say, "Hey, this guy is good. This person did a fantastic job. Let's put them in a situation, or let's put them, uh, or let's have them think about new ways to grow the business." And when you do that, you know there's nothing wrong with that because past success, past success is a determinant of future success. But if you take someone with high creative achievement and put them in a situation that requires high creative potential, then you fail before you start and you don't even know it. And, and that's where companies fall apart, is that they don't have the right skills in place and they don't provide the right environment. Now, if you take someone with these, if you take someone with potential and combine them as someone with achievement, then you get just unmatched creativity, as long as you're able to curate it. And that's why, you know, companies with co-founders, uh, you know, two people bringing out the best in each other, build these uh, insanely valuable innovations. Um, and so that's just a little bit about how you can actually curate creativity mm. and, and unleash creativity. So
0: uh, final question before we turn it over to the audience is um, what, what, and this is kind of everyone's favorite topic, failure, <laughs> everyone likes to talk about failure. Uh, what is failure when it comes to innovation?
2: Yeah, so uh, innovation, uh, you know, uh, n- creation of new value is a leap of faith. You know, a high degree of failure is to be expected. It's, uh, it's something you kind of do because you believe in it. It's, it's, uh, it's controlled by so many factors that are within and outside your control that you know, you're gonna have a much higher level of failure. Now every company you can think of, you, can, you may have your list of most innovative companies in your mind and you know, most people have Apple and Google and Amazon and all these companies at the top of these lists. All of these companies have had far more failures than successes, but we only talk about the one or two successes that over, over kind of dominate everything else. And you know, you're gonna have far more misses than hits. And uh, you can actually, but you have to understand failure and respect failure enough to learn from it. You know, right now there's a culture of wearing failure as a badge of honor or, you know, learn fast, fail fast methodologies are in vogue, which is all fine. But really, you know, you, you, you can't keep doing something and keep failing and, and feel pretty good about yourself because, hey, I tried something fast and I failed fast, so I must be doing the right thing. Uh, so. You know, you, you have to learn and respect from failure, and, and companies typically have a very low learning rate from failure. Now, the reason failure helps is because it gives you a conceptual understanding. If you fail at something, you get a deep conceptual understanding of what you've done, and the next time you, you you'll do it better. You, you'll do it differently. So individuals learn from failures, but corporations generally don't learn from failures. And many companies, uh, you know, if some if an initiative fails. The next time around, it's done with a different set of individuals, so you're kind of missing up on that opportunity. And uh, so failure is something that, that you have to expect because of what you do, but you also have to respect it and learn from it and, and make sure that the learnings are actually passed on. And in most cases, no one wants to relive failures. You know, anytime there's a failure, you kind of do a cursory review, because, you know, there's the next big thing waiting for you, and you kind of say, hey, I'm not going to worry about the failure.
0: I guess uh, kind of an inverse of that, though, in, in your book was a couple of examples of big ideas that came in that didn't got, get absorbed, but you, uh, but those, like the guy who uh, helped with the digital camera, he came back and helped with the DSLR. It, it, what's, what do you say to the person who's inside who is failing at getting people to get their innovations but to, to keep persisting on that?
2: Yeah, that's hard, right? Because uh, the example you're talking about is Kodak, common example, you know. Um, probably most of you in the room may know that the first digital camera was uh, kind of discovered or, or created at Kodak, but the company was so caught up in what they did, selling profitable rolls of film, that they just wouldn't give this thing, this new great creation the time of day, and ultimately it was the digital camera that led to the downfall of Kodak. Uh, but there are other cases uh, where, and there's very few, most companies are like this Kodak, that you know when you see something and you push it off, the innovation gets killed. In fact, the number one, thing that kind of uh, prevents innovation is the rejection of ideas, rejection of good ideas. Now, there are some companies, uh, for example, Nespresso, which is a great innovation in, in you know, single-use coffee consumption. Uh, Nespresso was something that was one guy's idea at, at Nestle. And actually, initially, Nestle said, hey, this doesn't fit in with a business model. You know? We're not going to sell this. But, the, but this individual persisted and, and kind of created and kind of forced this company to, hey, you know, let me just go ahead and try it. And when they tried it, they realized that this became a a huge success. So in most cases, uh, failure happens because uh, ideas are kind of just pushed away. But there are the rare cases where people can push through through that. But it requires a lot of things to happen in the right way.
0: So for everyone who was here today to get their lunch, they had to talk to three people and ask uh, each other share with each other their burning questions. And so I'm gonna prime our our Q&A session with a couple That's right, this is the hot seat. This is the hot seat, that's right, the hot seat. Everyone has to work here. Uh, So where's Kaylee at? Is Kaylee in? Oh, there you are. I'm gonna come over to you. I I liked your question, but I think you can say it better than I can. Um, I'm gonna hand you your card to remind you your question. And then if you could let everyone know who you are and uh, ask your question. Hi, I'm Kaylee Landau. I'm with um, the Georgia Manufacturing Extension Partnership at Georgia Tech. Um, and my question was, how do you avoid innovation ADD and know when to stick with an idea?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question because you, you know, you, at some point you need to know whether you should continue or cut your losses. Uh, so a couple things. The first thing is that you need to kind of know what your experience delta is. Know what your innovation is doing. Is it really altering experience in a positive way? And if you believe that it is, uh, then chances are it's going to be a success. If not now, then at some point in future. Because innovations live on, like the contact lens example. You know, it was something that had died, but it actually lived on. Or the invention of, uh, or the discovery of penicillin. You know, story everyone knows that this guy, you know, Alexander Fleming uh, kind of discovered penicillin. But that idea lay dormant for 10 years. But when you're in the day-to-day environment of knowing, you know, how to keep an idea going versus, or how to keep an innovation going versus saying, hey, I've tried this. I'd probably say you start with the experience delta, and if that experience is still big and that you still have a very positive change in experience, then you're probably onto something, you know, something good. And then maybe look at the other factors. Are there anything that's are there anything negative about it? You know, are there anything uh, are, are there things that kind of take you away from it, like negative side effects or something that you shouldn't shouldn't be doing? And if you feel like the the experience positive and experience the positive and the experience delta overcomes everything else, then you should probably keep pushing on, because if the idea, if you're not having success, it's, it's for some other reason, not the innovation itself. But if you feel like the negatives outweigh the positives, then you say that, hey, m- maybe this is something that I, I, I kind of stop. But you have to realize that, uh, you know, for example, a lot of people give up on innovation because it increases complexity. And uh, that is not a reason to give up on innovation because of the complexity. If you just think about it, you know, riding a bicycle is a far more complex undertaking than riding a tricycle. And, but yet, the benefits are so far great, the experience delta of a bicycle is so much greater than a tricycle, that it's something that you just, you know, you don't think about the negatives.
0: Hmm. On an adjacent note, I, I get our next question. So. Hi everyone. My name is Caitlin O'Donnell Ferguson. I'm with Emory. Um, my question closely follows the prior one. I wanted to understand a little bit more about when you're looking at your portfolio of potential innovative ideas, how do you accurately measure how, or accurately predict and forecast which ones you should be focusing on next?
2: Yeah. So again, uh, uh, so similar, similar response. You know, kind of. I use the experience delta, and I call it the currency of innovation because. You, know, you have currency for everything else, uh, for advertising and for everything else. But for innovation, you really don't have a consistent way to know, you know, when, you know which ideas to pursue on and which to give up. And if you get, if you get good at articulating your experience delta, you, you'll realize you'll be able to actually kind of lay out all your ideas from the biggest experience delta to the smallest. And the bigger ones are the ones that are going to have a bigger impact. And I would say that the, big, the bigger mistake that companies make is that they, they're very early trying to convert them into businesses, and they have these financial models and total addressable markets and all these things that actually lead you astray. So if you think of the printing press, that was just an invention that was simply created to print the process of, to ease the process of printing books. Now, if you think of today's world, had the idea of a printing press been presented to you know, a corporate executive committee or a VC community, it would have truly been laughed out of the conference room because who would want to invest in a printing press when 80% of the population couldn't even read? And it would take years for them to learn how to read. So the total addressable market was virtually zero and would stay non-existent. So I think the more important uh, kind of answer to your question is not only how you, you know, decide what ideas to pursue, but also what you shouldn't be doing because that's gonna take you down the wrong path. Mm.
0: Uh, this is kind of related in terms. Oh, excuse me. Oh, my name's Shane Owens. Do I need to stand up? I guess so. Uh, so it's kind of related in terms of how do you, you know, decide on when to kill things off or not. And um, I was intrigued by the concept of the disagree and commit um, in the context of not cash laden organizations like Amazon that are restricted. How do you, how do you foster that disagree and commit when you have limited resources?
2: I so I think that you know, of course innovation takes some resources. But you if you know a smaller company you're innovating at your level. You're not probably not doing the thousands of things, you're probably doing two or three things. Uh, but the thing to remember is that just because a an individual does not see promise in an idea, that does not mean it's not there. You know, I ran a smaller company, company far smaller than Amazon, like by orders of magnitude, and I've made I've made that mistake, you know, where somebody's come up with a great idea and, and presented, to, presented it to me, and I've said, oh, no, I don't see the value in it, and I've, I've, I've shut it down. And I've seen other companies do that thing and be successful. Uh, so at some point, you, you know, uh, I, I wish I'd known what I know now that I should have said, yeah, yeah, I don't see the value, I don't see the potential, but you do, so I'm going to let you go ahead and, and go forward with it. So to your degree of scale, uh, you know, you have to have that, that kind of leap of faith that, you know, yeah, this thing is going to show promise even if I don't see it exactly.
0: So I think in our final question that we have time for, um, kind of bridge this, this season we're talking about data and, and insights from, you know, studying data like you've done. Uh, th- this is going to touch on the next uh, season, so go ahead and uh, ne- final question for today.
2: Hi everyone. I'm Kushagra. I work for Honeywell. Uh, so my question is, how important is AI for innovation? So these days, a lot of products are coming out which use AI. Uh, so, like, what do you think? Like, how important is that in terms of innovation? Oh, I think it's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that you know, come, I mean, it's it's just like any of these big, massive waves that I talked about, whether it's the internet or mobile or smartphones or whatever. I think AI is is huge and I think all of us in the room know that. The key now is that what do you do with it? You know, how, you know, how do you build these positive experiences using AI? Now many people I talk to kind of just view AI broadly and say, okay, I'm just gonna bring AI into my company. But that kind of diffuses your efforts. Uh, but if you take specific experiences, you know, take these experience journeys you know, for whatever your company does, you know, this is how something is done currently. And if you take a specific uh, experience journey and then apply AI to it, then you may be able to build something that impacts uh, your experience delta. And if you're able to do that, that's how I'd encourage you to use AI. Not just broadly, but for specific case studies.
0: That's great. I know we could go for a lot longer. Yeah, fantastic uh, questions. I, yeah, these great stuff. I, this is what TechSquare is all about, right? This, and these ideas and breakthrough ideas that are happening. So um, we've come to the end of today's episode, sadly. Uh, but uh, once again, a huge thank you to uh, Tom Daly of Relevant Ventures, um, our strategic partners, the University Financing Foundation, Gateway, uh, SQ5, ATDC, Metro Atlanta Chamber, Choose ATL, and the Georgia Department of Economic Development and Georgia Centers of Innovation, and you, the audience. Um, for those joining us online, thank you for checking out this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the TechSquare ATL podcast channel on iTunes or SoundCloud. And please, do me a favor, um, leave us a rating on iTunes, pre- preferably be favorably, so I don't have to worry about my 17-year-old son's recently launched podcast getting more reviews than, than <laughs> this one. Um, and I'm not ready to see the head of household uh, title just yet, so um, if you wanna learn more about the heart of Atlanta sex scene, check out techsquareatl.com. If you want to book your breakthrough event in the garage, visit bookthegarage.com. So until you see the silhouette of a chair in the sky, this has been the Hot Seat Podcast.